All right, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're looking at verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40. Like I said, Philip had gone into Samaria to preach the gospel, and he's coming back, and we're going to pick up with another story that is fairly well known, especially among Christians in the church. This is one of those stories in the book of Acts that people seem to be somewhat acquainted with, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But actually, as I was reading this passage, I kept going back in my mind, I kept going back to William Carey. And if you, if you know who William Carey is, you might know where I'm going. If you don't, William Carey is considered the, the, the founder of the modern missions movement, right? William Carey was a, was a Reformed Baptist minister, right? He was a particular Baptist. And in 1787, he was at a minister's gathering and function, and he's articulating this need that the world has uh, for the church to send missionaries into cultures that don't have gospel or gospel churches. Right, we need to send people into these unreached people groups. And in his mind and heart, he's thinking, let's, let's send people to India, right? He wants to go to India. So he starts to articulate this, like we really need to like get organized and start sending some more of these people. And John Ryland is this guy that is, it's said, the story is he stands up and he says, uh, William, young man, sit down. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Uh, which is a take. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a perspective, I guess. Now, for us, it's so silly. It just seems so ridiculous of a statement. Like, because we've had the benefit of people having gone through the, the hard work of putting together missions agencies and promoting missions awareness and understanding. But at the time, there was a lot of confusion, especially among some Baptists. Really, the thought was, they doesn't need you, you you overly eager, enthusiastic young man. God will take care of it. Just get, just, it's all God needs is the word. He doesn't need you. And in this passage, I think we see uh, the, the truth, which, which really speaks against what this guy John Ryland had said. Here's the principle that I want us to see in this passage. The world needs God's word and God's people to preach God's gospel. The world is in desperate need, Right? of this good news. But to get the good news, the world needs God's word, the scripture, and God's people, the church, that's all of us, to preach his gospel. So I really, we're just going to break this down into three basic sections here to understand this passage and to get to this point. One, we're going to look at God's people, verses 26 to 29. We're going to consider God's word in verses 30 through 34. And then in verse 35, we're going to consider the gospel, God's gospel. So first, in verses 26 through 29, listen. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would teach us, that you would give us insight and understanding and most importantly, God, that you would actually change our hearts, that you would change not just our minds, but our hearts, our attitudes, that you would sanctify us and make us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Okay, so in these first few verses, we dial in on this idea of God's people. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us for this study in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus, before his ascension into heaven, says what to the people? He says what to the church? He says, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's one of the last things that Jesus says. Now, he says this, and the disciples hear this, the church hears this, and last week we saw that Philip, is beginning to do his part of fulfilling this great commission, right? He actually goes to Samaria. He leaves the the exclusively Jewish context of Jerusalem, right? And he goes into another culture that hasn't really embraced and it has actually dismissed much of the Jewish culture. It's sort of a halfway hybrid between Judaism and complete Gentile or paganism. So they have a little bit of that. So he goes there to fulfill the mission, to be faithful to the mission in preaching the gospel. And if you remember, he goes there and he sees a lot of fruit, some great things happen, but he also meets a guy named Simon who was a sorcerer, a magician, not the David Blaine kind, the crazy like witchcraft kind. So he sees this magician, they have these interactions, a whole story. Listen to last week's message if you didn't already. But it doesn't go well with Simon. Simon appears to be a believer. He, he looks like a new convert. He is for a while, but then he ultimately is shown to not be a follower of Jesus. Well, now Philip as really this representation of the people of God here, right? This this disciple, this apostle, now he's gonna encounter someone else in a very memorable story that has some pretty weird features to it, if we're honest. In fact, it begins with some weirdness because we see how Philip is led by God through the voice of an angel. See verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's like, You're, it's time to go. Another trip, another road trip, another adventure, another journey. He doesn't even know exactly what's going on. He doesn't have all the information, doesn't have the details. He doesn't have details, he just has direction. That's all that he's got. And he's going to go. And it's an angel of the Lord. It says an angel of the Lord speaks to him. Now, what did it sound like? Don't know. Don't care. Um, Like, was it audible? Could only he hear it? Was it in his mind or was it in the... Don't know. Don't care. Doesn't say. Don't get distracted. What happens is in some way, God is miraculously, supernaturally communicating to Philip through an angel. An angel tells him in one way or another, you need to go. It's time to go. No, this is not a common occurrence. It wasn't even a common occurrence for all of the apostles. But there are occurrences for the apostles from time to time when an angel intervenes. In fact, an angel shows up again in chapter 12. We'll read about that when we get there. But in one way or another, this angel communicates in an uncommon way, in a miraculous way, to an apostle. And what I really appreciate already on the front end of this is, right, so Philip hears from an angel directly. Angel says, time to go. Let's get after it. Not a lot of instruction, just some direction. And Philip goes. I love it. Uh, he's just game. And this is, this is Philip's mindset. We see it happening again later uh, in verse 29. He's, he's motivated, he's called, he's moved, and he's just, he's willing to go. He's willing to, to risk it. He doesn't even know what's going to happen. In fact, what happened last time? Saw some great stuff, but also had this whole big mess with this guy, Simon. He isn't burned or jaded. He's ready. And I love it because it really does encourage us. It should remind us that God does prompt us and move us to step into situations where we're supposed to speak, where we're supposed to not remain silent, where we have the opportunity to either testify to our faith or to preach the gospel, call somebody to faith and repentance. Like we get these opportunities as the people of God to do 
to step forward. And no, we don't have angels speaking into our ears audibly, but we are moved by the spirit in the midst of an opportunity. We're called to move. And now are we going to take that opportunity to actually go? It's actually pretty encouraging to see that, wow, other people do this. And I mean, you've all been there. If you're a Christian, you've been in that situation where you know, like, hey, I have the opportunity here to step forward and to say something or do something. Am I going to do it? Because it could be messy, uncomfortable or awkward. There could be consequences that I don't like. I remember the, the most dramatic time this happened to me that, that's clear, right, is uh, I, was a, I was a young Christian. I was going to Wabansi Community College. Any Wabansi Community College people in the house? Yeah. All right. So I went to Wabansi Community College and was studying HVAC. If you know what that is, cool. If you don't, don't care. So I was there studying in that and I had my Bible in my hand because you know I was a new Christian you carry your Bible everywhere especially this was before smartphones so I had my Bible and I'm like who am I going to talk to about Jesus and in that moment I'm in this area this public area and this giant mountain of a man walks in with long curly red hair uh, he, he looks like he like he wants to hurt somebody at that moment even he walks in and I was like not that guy who else you got but God has him walk in he sits down right next to me and I'm like oh that's real funny Jesus that's funny you know so I start looking like okay obviously you want me to share the gospel so let me find a nerd let me find somebody that's not going to beat me up if I tell him about Jesus nobody else this guy you know this guy's name was Harley by the way so Harley's sitting next to me and I'm like hey buddy what's going on so we start talking and I share the gospel with him. And then as I'm sharing the gospel with him, he's getting more angry. He's getting more angry. And I finally ask him, like, why? You seem pretty upset. And he said, because I've been in church my whole life and nobody's ever explained this to me. Like, this is the first time I'm hearing this. And I was really, I, was, I didn't want to even take this opportunity. And this was, this was one of the very few times in my life when I led somebody to Christ I'm not usually the guy that closes that deal. I sow lots of seed, but I don't see that. And it was, it was amazing. We'll see how this plays out for, for Philip. It works different in different ways. Different, it works in different ways for different people, but we all are given these opportunities to step forward. And sometimes it's not going to bear much fruit. Sometimes it will. Philip takes the opportunity to do this thing. He moves forward. So, I love that. And so he gets out there, he starts going, and he runs into the Ethiopian. We don't just call him the Ethiopian, though. We call him the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't call him the Ethiopian uh, uh, civil magistrate. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't call him. There's a lot of things we could call him, but for some reason, we like to focus on the eunuch part because the reason we focus on that is because it's weird, and we don't have eunuchs today in our culture, and we're like, he's the Ethiopian eunuch. But he's much more than that, Okay. In verses 27 to 28, we see that there, he sees an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of her treasure. So this is a man from Ethiopia. Philip, no doubt, sees this guy, and he knows right away. He probably knows, oh, this is a guy from Ethiopia. He probably sees his, his darker skin. Right? He probably understands he's from the African continent. He sees the way he's dressed. So, okay, Ethiopia. He sees that he's in a particular chariot. It's, it's not lost on Philip who this guy is. Okay, this is, this is a guy that of means. He has some status in his culture, and he's here. So we have a man from Ethiopia who is the head of treasury. It's really how he should be known, right? But he's known as the eunuch. And I, if you don't know what a eunuch is, uh, there are two possibilities for what this means in this passage at the time that it was written. It can mean a man who has been like literally emasculated. He's had his sexual organs removed. Now, there was reasons that people did this in cultures back in the day for commitment and their vocation. Uh, 
Not a fan, don't think that's a good idea. We're not saying that's a good thing. That's just one of the things that some cultures did in service of royalty. So it could mean that, but it could also simply mean uh, that he was a royal officiant, right? Because sometimes that word was used without regard to a physical uh, sort of emasculation. And it was really referred to as somebody that has been dedicated in their entirety to service to royalty. We don't really know which one it is. It doesn't really matter. Um, This is a person who is in service of his queen, but he has come to Israel to worship. He's actually like reading the scripture while he's on this this chariot. I mean, you can see that, right? He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He he, he took the journey, right? He's going, he traveled to go to the temple. It's a big deal. Now, how is it that, that an Ethiopian guy worships Yahweh and wants to go to the temple. How is that, right? And we've talked about this before, that there was a Jewish dispersion or diaspora. Uh, and what happened was, as we read about this in the Old Testament, that the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Israel at two different times got sacked by invading armies. God allowed this to happen because each of these kingdoms had rebelled and become idolatrous and weren't listening to him. And he goes, well, here are the consequences. You're gonna be taken into captivity. So there was this dispersion of Jews into pagan lands. They would take the, the kingdom, northern kingdom and they would take the southern kingdom and bring those people into captivity and in captivity the jewish people did what well they did what we would do they start gathering together putting their scripture together say like okay listen we're stuck here we're gonna live here let's get our scripture on let's get our worship together let's let's be focused here and what happened is is they they actually made disciples of the jewish faith in pagan lands and there's no doubt that this ethiopian man had become influenced by them and become a worshiper of yahweh So here he is in his chariot. He came to Israel. He came to Jerusalem to worship and he's reading the scripture. He's reading the prophet Isaiah in the chariot. And here's what I love about this. Like this, again, it's just, if I could just as an aside, God is always at work in people's lives before they ever come to faith in Christ. He's at work in everybody's life in different ways. It doesn't always lead to conversion, but he's always doing something. He's always active. And in in the case of everybody that comes to faith in Christ, before their conversion, God was at work in a variety of ways. It was like this with my friend Harley, right? Big, scary guy, reputation for violence and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then this guy gets soundly converted. But it wasn't like, oh, I just converted this guy. Like, it wasn't me. He was converted by the ministry of the word when somebody took the time to share the gospel with him. But before that moment, there had been a number of things in his life to actually prepare him for that moment. And see, that's what the work of God is in someone's life before their conversion. It's oftentimes called preparation. Preparation-ism. The Puritans made a big deal about this, actually. That before anybody is converted, right, exercising faith in Christ and repentance of their sins, before that moment, God is preparing their heart and their soul through a variety of means. Maybe they're hearing the scripture. Maybe they're feeling conviction of their sins. Maybe they go to worship. Maybe, they, maybe they're just having relationships with, with Christians. And so they're hitting these different points in their life and their minds and everything is changing. They get to a place. And then after a season of preparation, whether that's one month or 10 years, by the power of God, they believe in the gospel. And we see it happening here in the Ethiopian's life. This guy's been thoroughly prepared. So Philip shows up and God leans in again and says in verse 29, go over and join this chariot. Now it says the spirit.
spirit said to Phil. So now it's the spirit, angel and the spirit. Spirit says it. How did he say it? Don't know. Go and join this guy. And so, so far here we have God's people like interacting with the world. And in this case, with a God-fearing man who was from Ethiopia. And now we get to look at God's word in verses 30 through 34. It says, Philip ran to him. By the way, love that. Philip ran, booked it. He got told to go, seized the opportunity, doesn't hesitate. Super encouraging. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So let's just take a moment to say, number one, why is he reading it out loud? He's reading it out loud, particularly because the Jews... They, in the first century, for sure, they didn't value reading scripture silently, okay? It was meant to be read aloud. If you read it in your head, in your own mind, it would be easy to forget. But if you read it aloud, it helped in memorization. So that was the practice of the Jews. Read it out loud. Also because scripture was generally only uh, accessed in a corporate setting. So it was read aloud so that everyone could benefit from the reading of scripture. That's one thing to note. Second thing to note is this guy has money, because it's not like you could go buy a pocket New Testament, pocket Old Testament. You can't get a study Bible. There are no Bible apps back then. I didn't know if you know that. So how did he get scripture if it was only really publicly accessed in synagogues? It's because if you had money, you could buy a copy of the scroll. So he bought a copy of the scroll so that on his way back home, he could go over scripture. This is awesome. So the Ethiopian, right, he is interacting with scripture. He has a desire and a need that has brought him to grab this scroll and take it and take it with him and when he's asked well do you do you know what you're reading do you understand it he says well no I I, I need somebody to explain it to me what I love the humility here because this is this should be true for all of us right we should all understand this right that we need scripture but we also need people to help us understand scripture it's why God gave us teachers and preachers because we all every single one of us need others to help us understand God's word so here's the Ethiopian, he has the word, he's seeking something with the scripture, right? He's seeking knowledge or seeking salvation. He's seeking the Lord. And this is the function of scripture. Scripture is given that we might know God because apart from revelation, we will never truly know God. In Romans 10, 17, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right. So how does how how it, how does it how does it work? Right. Faith. Where does it come from? Well, it's an expression of trust and dependence upon God. But how is it that we get to that place? It comes through the ministry of the word. Without the ministry of the word, there will be no faith. There will be no dependency on Christ. Listen to Second Timothy, chapter three. In Second Timothy three. Starting in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, which was his grandmother, by the way, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is the sacred writings, the scriptures that make one wise unto salvation. If we want people to believe in Christ, if we want to grow in our faith, then we need the scripture. Without it, there is no conversion, there is no faith, there is no life. So God's word is absolutely essential. 
Now, he's reading God's word, but he's actually reading the most gospel-rich chapter in the Old Testament, perhaps, right? Isaiah 53, that's what he's reading. The passage, this is verse 32, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. It's the literal translation of uh, English translation of this Greek Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. So he's got the scripture. He's got Isaiah 53 right there. He's, he's looking at the gospel and he says, I need help understanding this. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? He's reading this gospel packed chapter and he's asking for help. I'll tell you this, it doesn't always happen this easy. This is not common, right? When you, when you, when you take the time to, to share the gospel with somebody, uh, you might just be a, a, a part of their preparation, right? You might be sowing seeds and helping along the way. Uh, or maybe you're going to be the person who is really invited to come in and break down the gospel and they wind up believing. And Philip's having this kind of experience. And so we can look at God's gospel here as we Step into verse 35, right? Because it says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So he begins with this scripture. He starts with Isaiah 53. So let me go back. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. So what is he, what is he explaining to this, this Ethiopian eunuch? What is he explaining to him that how this good news works from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is, is a prophecy about the one who would come, the suffering servant who would redeem God's people, save us from our sins. Listen to a few of these verses. We'll start with verse four. Speaking of this one who would come, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is just part of the chapter that he's unpacking for the Ethiopian. And it says that he uses this to preach the good news, to show him that just as the scripture says again and again that we are all sinners and experience misery and brokenness because of our own doing and the, the doing of others. We are miserable sinners in need of help that we do not deserve and yet God extends it kindly. In fact, he promises here in Isaiah 53 that he will send a servant who will be his son who will sacrifice himself as our substitute he will become the guilt offering that atones for our sins. So in him who takes our place, who takes our suffering and our shame, those who believe in him find what? Healing and life and restoration and union with God. And as Philip and all the apostles do and all the church does throughout this, this book of Acts is when they preach the gospel, they, saw, they talk about Old Testament promises and the fulfillment being found in Jesus of Nazareth. Is he speaking about himself or someone else? 
Philip says, oh, no, he's speaking about someone else. He's speaking, you've probably heard of him. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified, dead, and buried, and he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, showing that he is the one that was promised. And like with every gospel presentation that we see in the book of Acts, right, it is common, it is understood. You preach the gospel, the good news, God loves sinners and offers forgiveness to sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. The call for response is what? Believe the gospel, repent of your sins, believe in this good news, trust not in yourself, but in Jesus. Like that's where you go. And apparently the Ethiopian does just that. He repents and believes. We know this because he immediately wants to be baptized. And how would he even know to be baptized if Philip didn't get into that as well, which I love. Like Philip doesn't leave anything up to chance, right? He, he explains the gospel, obviously calling for faith and repentance. And then he explains, listen, and when you believe, then you're baptized, right? You're immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is a picture of your cleansing from sin, your union with Jesus, being buried with him in baptism and being raised in a new life. You become a part of a church. It's this whole thing. And then Philip and, and, and the Ethiopian, as they're going, they see water and the Ethiopian's like, water, let's get going. I want to get baptized. That's how it's supposed to work, by the way. Right? They want to get baptized in following Jesus. And we see it here in verse 36. And as they were going down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Absolutely amazing. He wanted to follow Jesus in baptism. This picture of his salvation. And then it gets really weird. It gets really weird. If you don't, if you don't know the story, get ready. It's going to get weird. If you know the story and you don't think this is weird, then you're the weird one because this is weird. And if you don't think that this is weird, if you don't think that this is strange, if you don't think that this is kind of like a question mark, then I don't know how seriously you take the scripture when you read it because this is bizarre. Here's what happens next. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Nothing to see here. They were baptized. Philip was in the water, baptizing the Ethiopian and then he disappeared, and that's a, that's a thing. That happens. That's normal. We just, why would we pay any attention to that? Uh, and it obviously must be normal because it doesn't even register for the Ethiopian. He's like, you saw him so normal. He's like, all right, nice, cool. Let's get going. And he goes on his way. And like, listen, please do me a favor. Just always listen carefully uh, to preachers when they begin to explain how things work when the Scripture doesn't do that for us because we don't really know how this works all we know is that it happened I don't doubt that this happened I know that this happened I believe that this happened somehow miraculously supernaturally it doesn't make sense to me but I believe it that after he baptized the Ethiopian he disappeared he literally he literally disappeared and he wound up somewhere else that's not normal that's not a common thing. This doesn't happen a lot in scripture. But during this apostolic era, weird stuff was happening. Listen, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, 
other bodies were raised from the dead and walked out of the tombs. Some weird things happen. So I believe it. But be suspicious when, listen, I've seen pastors, I've heard pastors, Baptist pastors, charismatic pastors try to explain, well, what happened here is that um, obviously Philip turned invisible. And that's why he couldn't be seen anymore because now he's invisible and he can just want to walk away and, uh, maybe to escape persecution. He doesn't say that. No reason to believe that. Other pastors, like preachers will say, Philip could fly during this time and he flew all the way over there because somehow that's more believable than just, and th- like that's more believable? I think him just f- appearing over there interdimensionally is more believable than him flying around as an invisible guy. Whatever happened, whatever happened, Philip was miraculously transported from one place to another. The how and the why, there is no answer to why, by the way, is not relevant or important. What's relevant and important is like what was happening in this moment. The Ethiopian was converted, baptized, and immediately after he's going home rejoicing because he has this certainty that he's been cleansed, forgiven, and he's a part of God's family. He's going home a child of God. And Philip, Philip, okay, it's very interesting and cool that he magically, supernaturally, by the power of God, uh, wound up uh, somewhere else. The point is, is that he immediately begins preaching the gospel in the next place he goes to. This is the point. Wherever God puts Philip, he is faithful to the calling to be a minister of the word. He continued on the mission. No explanation is given because it ultimately doesn't matter. So in this passage, we see that the world needs God's word. But in order for the word to be brought to them, the world needs God's people. Because it's God's people holding on to the word that that presents the gospel to the unbelieving world to ultimately, hopefully, believe. And so I hope that this this encourages all of us in a couple of different ways. Number one, if you are not a believer in Jesus, please hear me when I say this, salvation comes by the hearing of God's word. I was converted while reading the gospel of Matthew in 1990. I was literally reading the gospel of Matthew and after hearing the gospel for a year, after wrestling with my guilt and sin, while reading the gospel of Matthew, I came to the point of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you're not a believer, I want you to hear God's word. You should read it, you should consider it. But for those of us who are Christians, we should also value God's word in such a way that we study it so that we can explain it. Listen, your job is not to study scripture so that you can understand it. It's your job to study scripture so that you can understand it, so that you can explain it, share it, teach it to others. You're not done with your hermeneutics. You're not done until you're ready to communicate it to others. That's what theology is. Theology isn't your knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of God experienced and then publicly expressed to others. That's what we're called to do. So hopefully we will value the word of God enough to know that it's what God uses to sanctify, to change, to convert, to build us up so that we study it to know all of it. What if Philip didn't know the Old Testament? And homeboy's like, I don't know what this means. Can you explain it? Sorry, didn't take that class. Never bothered to study Isaiah. Don't really know. We should study to be able to unpack the word to help others believe it. So we should value the word and 
we should also be a people who know what the point is, like what the, what the goal is, what our message is, because there's a whole lot in this giant book of 66 books with over 40 authors. There's a whole lot of things to see and to learn and to know, and it's easy to find one part of it and you go like, that's what I'm going to camp out on. That's my message and that's my jam. It's easy to get distracted from what Jesus says the point is, like what the message of the church is. Paul's very clear. Our message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our message is the good news that God's love for sinners is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who saves all who believe from sin, death, and hell. That's our message. And then lastly, I just want to encourage you with this. If the world needs God's word and God's people for the gospel, then you and I need God's word and God's people for the gospel. Like... The, I need the word and I need you all as much as an outsider does, not for my salvation, but for my sanctification, for my growth, for my strength. And if you and I don't have a love and appreciation for the gospel, if it's not good news to us, we're not likely to hold it out as good news for others. William Carey was told to sit down and, and mind his own business uh, but instead he went he went to India <laughs> William Carey was never like a first like a, he was never quick with success I think he failed his first ordination exam and then he goes on to the mission field and for seven years he labors and preaches and doesn't see any converts lots of prepar preparation happening lots of preparing but he was faithful he believed ah the world, and India in his case, needs the word and it needs God's people to bring the gospel. And he did that and eventually began to see conversions and we have a booming Christian church in India as a result. The world needs God's word and the world needs you to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would... Um, Convict us and encourage us today. If we need to be convicted wherever that is, we pray that you would point that out so that we could repent and change and learn. We also pray, God, that you would encourage us, that you would lift our heads and strengthen us so that we would actually do what you call us to do and take the opportunities you give us to take. We pray, God, that we wouldn't grow weary or lazy. Lord, help us to have eyes to see the people around us who don't know Jesus, who need hope. And Lord, if we're afraid, when we get afraid, when we get nervous or scared, we pray that even if, even if we don't hear the, the whisper of an angel or the voice of the Spirit, Lord, help us to hear your word ring in our own hearts and to be moved and encouraged because your Spirit does dwell within us to empower us for the very task of bearing witness. Lord, we offer ourselves to you in worship and in service, that the name of Jesus might be believed upon here and everywhere else around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.